A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman Podcast. This week we discuss whether the Trump train is coming off the rails. Why Chris Grayling is still a thing. And whether Theresa May is good or lucky. Plus, Anusha Kalian joins us to talk about her trip to Stoke. And I've got a new song for you, Ask Us. So it was an eventful week in Trump land. So his pick for Labour Secretary has to withdraw after someone found an Oprah tape of his wife in disguise saying that he'd, uh, he'd attacked her. So he's pulled out. Uh, Although actually the reason why he pulled out was because it also turns out he's uh, hired someone who didn't have the right to work in the United States. And he paid Republican, terrible, terrible wages. I mean, but Republican norm- senators were, were really relaxed about the terrible wages, about saying, look, the best thing about automation is it means you can get rid of your staff. They were relaxed about the being horrible to his wife, but he hired an illegal immigrant. And that, that is, it turned out, was the line in the sand. at that point, Marco Rubio's spine, it turned out suddenly did exist about something so uh, yeah so that's why he's pulled out in other trump uh, actual confirmed cabinet appointments yeah jim mattis the defense secretary mm-hmm. was in a meeting with various nato defense secretaries and he was just like look if you don't pay the two percent of your gdp towards your defense we are going to rethink our commitment to nato i've got to say this is a massive surprise to me because i definitely heard theresa may say that she had heard donald trump say that he was a hundred percent committed to nato and if the word of donald trump is not his bond Stephen, where are we i think actually this has been quite an interesting week in terms of the ongoing theresa may good or lucky debate in terms of the lucky side of the calculation because it's been a week of several unforced hairline fractures as it were so hairline fracture one is obviously the fact that she has been wandering all over town you know saying to european diplomats look i can be our bridge to trump i got a commitment to nato now you can make a really good argument that if you are a member of nato you should be spending your two percent target on defense however you are not committed to an alliance if your first thing is well look first pay and then we'll talk about whether or not i'm going to come help you Right. But the lesson of this week is, I think, is probably that Trump doesn't have a NATO policy in the same way that the lesson of this week is that Trump doesn't have an Israel-Palestine policy because his answer on the two-state solution was kind of, I want the solution that both sides are in favour of. And you were kind of like, we all want that. But that's, that solution doesn't exist. And I think that's one of the really interesting things is not that he has a bad foreign policy, which I'm sure he, maybe he does at some deep level, but that no literally no one knows what his foreign policy is. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of problems. One, obviously, that Trump says things which do bear a 
distant relationship with the truth. The second is, and I think the Israel-Palestine thing was terrifying, not actually because of what the policy therein was, because there were several within the same statement. So this is a man who kind of went, oh, I'm not sure if I'm committed to the two-state solution, but I would like settlement building to stop. And he's like, the the two ends of this sentence are wildly different <laughs> policies. He, it towards... followed two paragraphs of him saying no one thought he could win the Electoral College, but he well won the Electoral College. That was the best thing, is that that was your answer to your question about the Israel-Palestine question was like, yeah, but the thing is, no one said I could win the Electoral College, and I totally nailed it. It does feel weirdly as if one of those not very good candid camera comedies, you know, like Ali G or Borat, you know, that kind of tedious thing, where you have sort of a, a real politician and then someone sitting there being like, yag smash or whatever it is he says. Because it, it is... it is. <laughs> Tune in for more of Stephen's terrible impressions of 90s comedy. Um, but it does feel like someone's doing a candid camera where someone pretends to be a, a man-sized toddler while a real politician stands there just being like, what am I what am I hearing? That's, his press conferences are now, I really... I actually find myself watching them because I just find them jaw-dropping. I mean, the one with Theresa May where she went, and we have agreed, haven't we, that uh, the NATO is definitely a great thing, was fun. Then there's the brilliant... He shook um, Shinzo Abe of Japan hand for like 25 seconds and there's a bit where Abe just looks off at the end like who is this guy and his weird handshake and then Justin Trudeau just all the way through just I mean has this sort of look like a kind of Labrador-y kind of look you know this sort of like kind of look but I presume it's just you know he just looks like you know how that look that Justin Trudeau has now you're giving me a a look that's very similar to it ironically that where he just looks like he's not really there but he's just very pleasant I'm not entirely sure what you mean but I'm going to move on I think the, the the one fascinating thing about the press conferences, actually rather like that not particularly funny genre of 90s comedy, they do at least reveal quite a lot about the other person participating in it. I think it is revealing in all, all sorts of ways than Trump, a man who is famously volatile, who was being a bit weird and volatile in his press conference with Theresa May. I think it's hugely revealing that Theresa May left that meeting be like, I'm so smart, I've got a, I've got a 100% commitment to NATO, I'm going to have the best Brexit ever. It's just like, Okay. And you said that my impression of the Manic Street Preachers was bad. And now you've recast Theresa May as kind of like, I don't know, as sort of... That's her inner monologue. It's like Mother from Tom and Jerry or something. And the second you realise that Theresa May's inner monologue at all times, in basically all policy uh, directions, is they told me it was wrong. Actually, it's working fine. I'm so smart. This is going to be great. Even if point two, it's going fine, is just not true at all, suddenly everything else she does makes a terrifying amount of sense. To say something praiseworthy of Netanyahu for hopefully the last and first time in my life, the interesting thing is actually Bibi does clearly understand Trump, right? So a lot of people are going, you know, you spent ages like condemning anti-Semitism every time Obama goes, Ben, you really can't behave like this. And someone who's appointed actual anti-Semites and who, you know, left Jews out for the Holocaust and more thing, and then you have nothing to say. Well, why? Because it's not in... It's not, not, it's not in... Yeah, it's not in Israel's interest. It's also not in his uh, narrow political interest, right? His interest has basically always been to go, it's the sea or me. But don't you think that kind of demonstrates the strand of politics and the region that Netanyahu comes from, right? He, rela- like, he understands what a kind of populist authoritarian who just wants to have big statues of him does better than somebody who's been used to dealing with Angela Merkel. He's kind of more into that vibe. I don't know. I think if Cameron was still around... Wow, I'm doing odd praise of (laughs) unlikely politicians today. I think if Cameron was still around, he would not be making 
the same huge misread of what Trump is. But here's the thing, though. Don't you think that everything that that Theresa May does is motivated by wanting to gobble up, basically put UKIP out of business as a party? And actually, the the thing that therefore really put the willies up them was seeing Farage hanging around with him. And they kind of thought, why why, why aren't we hanging around with him? And that they needed to kind of get some of that glow themselves. Oh, yeah. So a lot of the the state visit, etc., it was all about, oh, God, we need to have an in with the White House that isn't Nigel Farage. So it was obviously a bad week for that. And it speaks to the wider problem and obviously the the crew that went no 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 we can definitely trust a word that comes out of donald trump's mouth is going to have to negotiate brexit uh, yeah that is i think that's interesting the other thing i think is really interesting is the one thing we'd always said was you know Theresa may is really popular with her party right and that's why she got elected but actually she's not her party management i think is not as good as it could be as evidenced by the row of the speaker this week so you've got james dudridge a tory backbencher kind of freestyling off criticisms of the speaker and then sort of giving out these briefings from his friends saying, well, actually, you know, the, the government have licensed a free vote on this. So this is really evidence that actually ministers would be allowed to bring him down if they wanted to. Well, they, they would always have been allowed a free vote on that. And actually, did Theresa May want the beginning of this week's headlines to be all about her state visit with Donald Trump? Probably not. It sounds like they're trying to downgrade that as faster than a, our credit rating under George Osborne. Sing! <clears throat> anyway, the interesting thing about this week as well is that it has been the week when people have started to grumble in the lobby about the fact that there is no no news coming from Downing Street. You have started to see, even in the friendly press, the rumblings of things. Well, the business rates thing that's on the front yeah. page of the Daily Mail is really interesting because that is the, the upcoming budget, you know, after having had an autumn statement that was smooth sailing, really, the upcoming budget is going to be a lot more tricky for Philip Hammond to na- navigate. Yeah, and so this this business rates rise. They've now had the hat trick, right? So they had a hostile front page in the Telegraph, hostile front page in the Times, and now the Mail, which is usually kind of the grand central of isn't May lovely. But which is presumably, I would can only imagine prefigures a, a climb down on business rates. I mean, this is the thing I still struggle with. I actually am really interested to know what other people think about this. So do get in touch on Twitter or or Facebook. Is I still haven't worked out how to cover the government austerity and its inevitable climb downs, right? So it's when you go, oh, but how are they going to meet their fiscal targets of cutting £12 billion of welfare without taking it away from quote-unquote hardworking people? The answer, of course, is they won't, right? What happens is is they start, there's a public backlash, they U-turn, there's more borrowing, they cut some more things for the under undeserving, again, in, in heavy quotation marks. And actually, we never actually pay off the debt because in an odd way, austerity is only politically useful if it is ongoing, right? There's, there is no incentive to them at all to ever be able to turn around and go, okay, we're done. So the weird thing with the business rates is... On the one hand, this is a massive looming crisis for them because it speaks to the fact that they are running out of cuts that are politically pain-free and don't hit their people. However, we kind of all know that at some point they'll just go, oh, we don't really mean it. Austerity is just a stick to hit labour with and to shrink the state. And I still haven't quite worked out how with things like the business rates to cover it because theoretically it's a big problem. But in, in actuality, as you say, of course they'll climb down because it hits their people and that's not what it's about. Yeah, I think that's the fascinating thing about austerity and the way that it was used as this brilliant dividing line to essentially frame Labour as being you know, useless at managing the economy and spendthrift. 
And therefore they can kind of cash in that by occasionally doing nice things themselves, but knowing that they come from, you know, their reputation for prudence is sort of sufficiently established and they've got such a friendly press behind them that they can kind of get away with it. Which speaks to a thing that's really annoying me and I just need to get off my chest. The thing that you get this massive credit for doing the occasional nice progressive left-wing thing if you're generally right-wing, as if that's seen as you really having a heart, right? Whereas if you do left-wing things all the time, that's seen as kind of gauche and unsophisticated. That really annoys me. I just needed to get that off my chest, and I, f- I feel happier now. Okay. That saved me at least one round on Twitter, which is good, because my mentions are full of people who are very angry about Gamergate. Still, who knew that was still a thing? It is still a thing. Let's talk about Stoke now with Anusha Kalian, a newly appointed senior writer, so congratulations. We sent you off to the Midlands, my spiritual home, and my actual home for many of my years of my life, but there is a by-election on the 23rd, and Paul Nuttall has taken a striding round dressed like Mr Toad of Toad Hall. What was the atmosphere on the ground? I think probably anyone you ask who's either gone reporting in Stoke, like I did, or has been door-knocking for a while will tell you that the overriding tone is apathy. I think most people have kind of checked out of this by-election who are normal there. Most people who I asked who they'd be voting for either said that they weren't interested in it or they were toying between voting Labour or UKIP. So, I mean, there are people who are teetering between the two who otherwise would have been sort of solid Labour voters. So that's where, you know, UKIP comes in and thinks that this is an opportunity for it to... It's been a proper old-fashioned dirty by-election, hasn't it, Stephen? This is what I kind of think. There's just been so much dirt about both candidates. So Gareth Snell has sent dodgy tweets about how he wants to slap this woman and how he thinks this other woman's a, you know, wanker. Yeah, and he called Brexit a massive pile of... Shit, I don't I'm, know if you're allowed to Yeah, no, just podcast. bust our... We'll get an explicit rating on them. Okay. We'll cool and edgy. <laughs> um, oh my God, none of the other politics ones have an explicit rating. Yeah. That would be pretty metal, let's face it. Um, <laughs> but equally well, Paul Nuttless, uh So Michael Crick found out that he hadn't been living in the house that he'd registered as his address. There's been all this stuff about the fact he, he said he, repeatedly that he lost close friends at Hillsborough and now it turns out that... He, I know, it's that not the line, I think it's funny. It's the... There's a tweet which keeps getting retweeted in my feed, which is just like, in a way, we're all survivors of the Hillsborough disaster. <laughs> I, like Paul Nuttall, survived it by not being there. <laughs> yeah. Which I just think is hilarious. No, it is, but that's the trouble, isn't it? It's, and then Aaron Banks decided he would make everything better. This is the big UKIP donor by going, I'm really bored of it. I'm talking about Hillsborough. And you were like, okay, I don't think this is helping, actually. My opinion on this is that, so Gareth Snell's tweets were embarrassing and his stance on Brexit isn't helpful in this by-election. Paul Nuttall equally has had a lot of revelations about him that make him look like a very inauthentic, unsuitable candidate. But because there's quite a lot of apathy there, I don't know if it will really matter about what's going on personally with each candidate. Most people who I spoke to hadn't even heard of Tristram Hunt until the news came out that he was standing down. Maybe that says more about him than than about the constituency, but I think there's probably not that much interest in the personalities involved. I agree with Anoush, not least because I just think candidate effects as a whole tend to be written up. I know regular listeners are bored of me saying this, but Jeremy Corbyn, head of Stop the War, voted against, campaigned against the Iraq war, suffered the exact same Labour to Lib Dem swing as MPs in equivalent seats who'd voted for it, right? Unless you've personally been helped by the MP. Actually, even then, 
people are mostly ungrateful, right? People don't care all that much about... I think yeah. sometimes... That's definitely... I think right. sometimes... Because I think the thing that was really interesting when I went on Worcester at the 2015 election is that their MP, Robin Walker, is the son of the Peter Walker, who was an MP for decades, pretty much, in Worcester, and looks very like him. And actually, the other candidate said to me, well, the thing is, people say, oh, you look just like your father. And sincere enough, my dad, who'd been pressed into chauffeuring me around the... <laughs> in my crack journalist way, I can't drive still. My dad then immediately went, oh, Robin, oh, you never guess what your dad did and went up to him. So I think there are sometimes, like if you've got a long association with the seat or if somebody is kind of beloved, but most candidates vastly, I mean, they vastly overestimate their personal brand. I also think in an odd way, people always forget how many people there are in a constituency. So Robin's actually a really good example, right? He clearly did about two percentage points better than a Conservative candidate in a typical West Midlands marginal, i.e. he got 2,000 more votes. 2,000 votes won't save you, right? So, I mean, with Zach Goldsmith, actually, all of the evidence is Zach Goldsmith didn't really have any personal vote at all. But even if he'd, say, had a 10% personal vote, oh, oh wow, that's really impressive. It's only 9,000 votes. You can't get elected with 9,000 votes. You need to cleave that to someone else. And in reality, most MPs even ones who work really hard have probably only got personal votes of about like 3,000. In the safe space of the podcast, which is where you can say these things, how did the people you spoke to think about Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader? I didn't hear one positive comment about Jeremy Corbyn from a lot of people who I spoke to, even the ones who said that they would probably still vote Labour. So I spoke to a few students um, because the Lib Dems think that they can get all of the student vote there. Even they, who were saying that they'd voted Labour in the past and couldn't stand the idea of UKIP getting into power in their constituency, were saying that they wouldn't support Labour under Jeremy Corbyn. Almost it was less to do with Brexit and more to do with the fact that he comes across as incompetent and has divided the party. One of the things I thought was really interesting from that recent polling that showed Labour now in third place with C2D2, as kind of traditional working class occupations, was actually Labour had narrowed the gap with the Conservatives among AB1s, right? Which I think is, I mean, they're still behind, but mm. it was they had narrowed it by, I think, four points. And I think that's the danger for Jeremy Corbyn in seats like Stoke, is that the posh vote is kind a conservative right and then the traditional working class vote has fragmented between the two and then the students who are in kind of mid-class right because they they don't earn very much now but feel like they're on their way to somewhere yeah. are easily peelable away from the Lib Dems so you think well where's that yeah and public sector workers as well there's like a hospital and obviously people who work at the university as well they're peeling off to the Lib Dems too and one Labour MP said to me this week you know can you answer the question of what is Labour for in a single sentence and that's the problem and I mean, actually, you know, this is something that Peter Kellner said before the last election, generally about the parties, about the fact that the Conservatives and Labour had that problem, is that you couldn't sum them up what they were for in a single sentence. Whereas UKIP, you could, right? We just, we want kind of Britain to be like it was in the 50s, or we like we hate immigration, or whatever you want to say. And the Greens had their kind of USP as well. And then at that point, the Lib Dems didn't really have a USP. They've now made Brexit their kind of, their, their USP. But also, the thing with the Greens, and I think one of the striking things about the Corbyn era, is although there has been noticeable churn from people who voted Green in 2015, they are still regularly getting four or so percent, right? Why? Because there is a certain type of voter who, who, who doesn't want to vote for the winner, right? And actually, they vote in an anti-system way. You see it even more starkly in France because the two-round system allows you to, to vote for an anti-system party in the first round and then go, oh gosh, I didn't really mean it, in the second. I guess this plays into your point about not being part of the mainstream. Labour could go totally all green, all the green policies, right? And they still would, would want something to the side of that. Yeah, and I suppose they would have maybe voted Lib Dem before, but because the Lib Dems have been in government and with the Tories... Yeah. They would never back them and because they're seen as a winner. Or it's right. the same as the kind of Lib Dem 2010, UKIP 2015 voters 
who were actually like fairly decisive in some of the seats in Cornwall and, and the South East. Why? Because they just voted for a party which wasn't going to win, and that was their kind of thing. There's obviously been this, this long-term problem of the Labour vote becoming more and more dependent on Liberals, graduates of, of all ages and ethnicities, and ethnic minorities, regardless of whether or not they are graduates. In the future, that's great. And actually, in by-elections, one of the things that I think people haven't clocked about Labour's coalition and the Remain coalition, which look quite similar, is that they vote, right? Then actually, the people who voted to Remain are the affluent graduates and people with liberal social attitudes, all of whom are more likely to vote on average than the poor people without degrees and people with socially conservative and authoritarian views. Which means that my instinct is Labour's Brexit problem will get more acute because in council elections you will see the Lib Dems and the Greens making gains at Labour expenses and UKIP will continue to be in this kind of state of perpetual recession. And a lot of Labour MPs in university seats, in seats with large uh, graduate populations and various places like that will go, there are all these Lib Dems around me, I'm going to lose my seat. What are you, what are you doing about it, Jeremy? What are you doing about it? I think potentially in a general election those worries will be drowned out by the kind of people who, who do vote in general elections did vote in the referendum but won't vote in council elections or in by-elections. But that will, I think, make the referendum stuff more crunchy. If you had to, Anoush, and I know this is really unfair, would you bet on Labour holding the seat? Yeah, I think I would. I got the impression that there's going to be quite a low turnout from the people I spoke to there. So I think that will be in Labour's favour because UKIP's idea was to sort of do a rerun of the EU referendum for which they'd need quite a big turnout to get those voters who didn't quite edge them over the finishing line over in the general election. I think it's about 5,000. I think that leaves us in a really interesting position if Labour hold Stoke, whether or not they then lose Copeland, because Mm -hmm. actually the expectations are so low that they will benefit from any... Realistically, you would expect them to be not only keeping both the seats, but improving their vote share, right? That's actually where the bar is, but the bar is kind of not been set there. If Copeland gets lost, I think what a lot of people will go is, well, the Labour leader was against the main employer for about 30 years... You would just assume from a transactional perspective you'd lose that seat. Whereas we held Stoke, actually it looks like they might hold it quite well in terms of the percentage gap between them and UKIP. So people won't be running around worrying about their own seats. Let's go, well, okay, that's bad news for John Woodcock, who also sits for an industry that Jeremy Corbyn has a long record of being opposed to. But we kind of knew that anyway. So I think people will be more relaxed about it just because they are quite different although obviously in terms of what they would need to be doing to win the next election they really ought to be holding both of those by but also Mm. the thing is that if they're having by-elections they're doing focus groups and then they're actually getting data from voters in those kind of regions and from everything that i hear the focus groups are not good and i think that does make a difference within jeremy corbyn's team and how they see things right is that they are becoming more and more aware of the the mountain that they have to climb There are kind of two moods in the office. One is the polling is obviously bad. The Brexit polarity hasn't gone away. And we we, we obviously are all waiting to see if the Article 50 stuff has, has drained some of the poison. But they also think that Theresa May has made a couple of big bets that won't pay off on Brexit, on trying to hitch herself to Trump, etc, etc. So there is some light at the end of the tunnel. But one of the reasons why we've effectively ended up with kind of Miliband 2, this time with Beard, is that... The central problem of how you win power hasn't really changed, right? 
Uh, oh yeah, no, I keep thinking this is that in a way it's quite relaxing for every, all the Labour MPs just to be like, well, obviously Jeremy Corbyn's a problem. But what they're not doing is thinking when and if he steps down, what is our, what is then our answer, right? Because the, the, the problems do not begin or end with him, and there is not yeah. that you know. It's it's kind of relaxing in a way, I guess, for some of them just to be like, we're all doomed. He's going to be the leader. We're all going to die. It's yeah, all and be- all of this stuff about Labour's lost touch with its working class voters. I don't understand why people think that that's Jeremy Corbyn's fault. I mean, yeah. that was very much a problem under Ed, Ed Miliband and further back beyond that. So yeah. so I think everybody's so kind of appreciating easy, yeah. the kind of just like relax and let it wash over you. Yeah, it'll be a bit of a shock if they do manage to get rid of him and then they realise that with their whoever's next won't quite be able to. The one thing is I feel that some MPs have started to, weirdly, despite the fact that actually what happened to the Democrats and what's happening to the centre-left in Europe are quite different in terms of the demographic drivers and all of that kind of thing. What happened to Hillary Clinton made a lot of people realise, oh, wait a second, there is a broader problem for the left than to Corbyn or not to Corbyn. One kind of ultra-Blairite MP said, yeah, we've lost twice to Jeremy Corbyn. The Labour Party as a whole has lost two elect on the bounce. We really need to do some thinking so that in the next leadership election, our message to the party isn't just we're winners when we're palpably not winners. There is this gradual kind of dawning of the light than then there is a bigger problem. But they are still some way off. But that does paradoxically mean if Jeremy does look to be more unstable after the by-elections. Paradoxically, it will be his greatest ideological enemies in the PLP who will have the most interest in keeping him there because I think they are suddenly aware they are not ready Mm. yet. Well, thank you for joining us, Anish, and hopefully we'll make you come back and talk about other travels around the country uh, next time you're off on your... Yeah, I was going to say, off on your little, like, buggy, but (laughs) off on a rubbish train. (laughs) In the Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for... And it's still you and the moment you met me. You said it was cheap. You were the question of the century. I'm really excited because sleeper are reforming. Okay, but that that didn't even include the words you ask us. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll come back to me at the end and I'll, I'll work them in. Okay, right. So now it's time for a section we call You Ask Us, or the question of the century, apparently. And the question before us uh, is a good one, I think. It's from Eleanor. It's basically how how is how is Chris Grayling? Some of the regular listeners will know that Chris Grayling is my second favourite out of what I think of as three headed Hydra that all look alike: Chris Grayling, Ian Duncan Smith, and Daniel Hannan. He's very firmly in the middle of that. Although he is the tallest of them all. Oh, by that point. is the toughest shag married kill out there, isn't it? I mean, that is a boss level shag married kill. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I think of them as a set of Russian dolls because they all kind of one of them would fit inside another quite well. 
But basically, uh, Chris Grayling's ministerial career has, shall we say, not been covered in glory. So he... Basically, Chris Grayling's... The, the best thing Chris Grayling has done, the only role he's succeeded in as a minister, has been being the punching bag for Chris Bryant when he was leader of the House. Because every week in business statement... Hot it, Chris on Chris action. He would have kind of a series of zingers about Chris Grayling's incompetence in his previous job and indeed his incompetence in his current role of leader of the House. And there's nothing like watching an, an intensely humorless man attempt to do repartee back. So that was good. He was good at that. Or- but however, as Justice Minister, he basically dismantled the probation service and they're now kind of have to, having to try and remantle it. All the people who bid for the private contracts then went, uh, these don't make, we can't, you know, we're going to have to cut huge amounts of staff in order to make these work and therefore we aren't going to be able to do any of our preventing reoffending work. What was his job before Justice Minister? Do you know, I can't even remember. I think I've tried to wipe it from my mind. And then obviously as Transport Minister, his um, his great plan was that he we couldn't sell off um, Southern to TFL to be his run as a not-for-profit because that would help Labour. He genuinely said that. Yeah, the best thing is he didn't even do that before, sorry, after Sadiq Khan had, had won. He did it at a time when the Conservatives still thought they might defeat Sadiq Khan when he basically went, look, we, we can't devolve things to London because they might at some point in the future vote the wrong way. Okay, thanks, bye. But in an odd way... Do you know, he was Minister of State for Employment between 2010 and 2012. Before that, he was Shadow Home Secretary from 2009 to 2010. Before that, he was Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions from 2007 to 2009. He was Shadow Secretary of State for Transport, so he really ought to have been better when he got in from 2005 to 2007. He's so got a majority of 24,000, so that cheers everyone up. But so there are a couple of, of reasons why Chris Grayling is where he is. One of which is, of course, in the end of that little list, which is his majority of 24,000. One of the reasons why in parliamentary democracy, parties which lose tend to keep losing, is if, you, if your candidate and your cabinet and your shadow cabinet have to be drawn from your legislature and you've just lost a bunch of seats there, your talent pool has gone down. And because throughout much of the 90s and noughties, it wasn't like the New Labour landslides only hit unremarkable Tories. The people who survived survived because they had big seats, which meant that they were making their way up through the Conservative Party at a time when there wasn't a whole bunch of choice. And then in 2010, some people who, to be frank, shouldn't really be running big departments still are for reasons of factional balance which is yeah well this is one of the things that gets me and i know this is me putting my feminazi hat on but the amount of hostility there is to diane abbott and her perceived incompetence versus the amount of hostility there is to chris grayling and his perceived incompetence there is a massive discrepancy in that which cannot be explained by their actual records in government or indeed in life, right? There is clearly, you just get a bonus by being a white man. Or, and uh, and on the right, actually, you know what? Uh, particularly at a time when the press is so dominated by the right and the right is so hegemonic in, in terms of government, um, that you just kind of get a pass. Yeah. And I think he's he's the, the man has had the biggest pass. In Duncan Smith maybe had a slightly bigger pass because he sort of looked moist-eyed and sad about the people that he'd met, which at least Chris Grayling doesn't inflict that kind of faux piety on us, which I will give him credit for. Harriet Harman is another good example of the double standard. Harriet, basically, until the second time she was leader, there were still people going, oh, she was a fairly rubbish uh, Secretary of State for what was then Social Security, but yeah, work and pensions even. But she'd acquitted herself very well in a variety of other jobs in government. 
she had an immense backlog of achievement both within the Labour Party and in the country as a whole. Whereas Ian Duncan Smith is still being held as a visionary, sometimes within the same articles praising Damien Green, whose sole achievement is wandering around the DWP pouring water over the various fires Ian Duncan Smith accidentally started in various waste paper baskets. Yeah, I think there is a thing about the fact as well that you get a bonus for being um, a good source for the lobby. Hence the source of many... Like, the reason that Michael Gove was always, oh, that guy, he's just got so much to give. Some of that was he's got so many briefings to give, so many sweet, sweet briefings. And if you're the kind of person who isn't kind of chummy with the reporters then actually that is a kind of you just get a kind of mentally downgraded because there's there's no there's no reason to puff you up right because actually it's if if someone's a brilliant source for you is in your interest for them to be seen as a great seer and sage because then every time that they tell you something you can print it and you've got a nice little scoop for yourself or on the like the labor side when michael duggar was sacked from jeremy corbyn's shadow cabinet the first time around and the number of journalists were like why would he sack Michael Duggar? Just, I mean, I, I can think of many reasons. Short, short of him coming into the shadow cabinet, sharpening a knife, and be like, you see this knife, Jeremy? <laughs> it's for you. And kissing the knife every time Jeremy was speaking. He could not have been more obvious in the fact he was going all over town planning to destroy Jeremy Corbyn. Which, you know, you can, you can make a strong argument in favour of dying trying to do that. But this idea that you should be able to be in the shadow cabinet while doing it is obviously crazy. So yeah, so that's our answer to the the Chris Grayling question. He gets a bonus for looking like a generic expert, and he gets a bonus for surviving the various Labour landslides of the early nineties. So actually, it is Tony Blair's fault. Like everything. And on that note, goodbye. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush. The music is by Underscore Orchestra and is licensed under Creative Commons. We're produced by India Ball. Helen needs new specs, so subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. If you already subscribe, go to your local WH Smith and cover The Spectator with a copy of The New Statesman. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.